Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Welcome to the latest issue of Blackstone Chambers Litigation Podcast. This edition features four talks on current issues in fraud litigation. Luca Krishlanin will be talking about the aftermath of obtaining a freezing order, and in particular, what steps you can take to ensure compliance and get the most out of your order. Tom Leary will address potential remedies available to victims of authorised push payment frauds. Leona Powell is going to speak to you about search orders in the wake of the Court of Appeal decision in TBD and Simmons. First up, I'm going to talk about dissipation in the context of freezing orders. Specifically, what evidence can legitimately go into that section of the affidavit in support of the application for a freezer dealing with the risk of dissipation? So what constitutes a risk of dissipation? The early authorities tended to suggest that an applicant for a Moreva had to show that the defendant would remove his assets from the jurisdiction for the purpose of defeating any judgment that might be obtained against him. In other words, it was thought to be a subjective test of nefarious intent, which is damn difficult to satisfy. Mr Justice Mustill, as he then was, laid that fallacy to rest in his seminal decision in the Nieder Saxon. His formulation of the applicable test was upheld by the Court of Appeal, namely whether the refusal of a Mareva injunction would involve a real risk that a judgment or award in favour of the plaintiff would remain unsatisfied. The test is therefore objective and there's no necessity to prove nefarious intent, although if you have evidence of an intention or propensity to dissipate, that's obviously very useful, as we'll see shortly. More recent judicial analysis has recast this test as focusing on the so-called enforcement principle. That was defined by Lord Justice Beetson in the Court of Appeal in Abliazov number 10 as the purpose of a freezing order is to stop the injuncted defendant dissipating or disposing of property which could be the subject of enforcement if the claimant goes on to win the case he has brought and not to give the claimant security for his claim. That definition found favour with the Supreme Court in the same case. The enforcement principle of course also featured prominently in the reasoning of the seven-man Privy Council in the Conroy Collateral and Broad Idea case, particularly with Lord Leggett. In truth, it amounts to much the same. The claimant must show that there's a real risk that, absent a freezing order, any judgment may not be enforced or met due to the defendant's unjustified dissipation of assets. I emphasise the latter. Any disposal must be assessed objectively unjustified. Um, the point was put neatly by Mr Justice Popperwell, as he then was, in Angola and Dos Santos, as approved and very slightly tweaked by the Court of Appeal in Lacatamia Shipping and Morimoto. Uh, thus, a worldwide freezing order is not intended to stop a corporate defendant from dealing with its assets in the normal course of business. Similarly, it's not intended to constrain an individual defendant from conducting his personal affairs in the way he's always conducted them, providing, of course, that such conduct is legitimate. If the defendant is not threatening to change the existing way of handling their assets, it will not be sufficient to show that such continued conduct would prejudice the claimant's ability to enforce a judgment. That would be contrary to the purpose of the worldwide freezing order jurisdiction, because it would require defendants to change their legitimate behaviour in order to provide preferential security for the claim, which the claimant would not otherwise enjoy. Or as Lord Justice Newey put it slightly more pithily, in organic grape spirit and Nueva IQT, 
the court will not restrain all conduct which could prejudice a defendant's ability to satisfy a judgment. Absent a proprietary claim, which I'll come back to, a defendant's assets belong to him and a freezing order is not intended to give a claimant security for what he alleges to be due to him. The court's concern is with unjustified disposals. So what do you need to prove dissipation? Three points. First, the risk of dissipation must be real as opposed to fanciful. Second, the standard of proof is a good arguable case. And third, the risk must be proved by solid evidence. Mere suspicion, inference or generalised assertion will not suffice. So what evidence goes into that section of the affidavit in support of the application? Generally, but not invariably, an application for a freezing order will arise in connection with a claim for fraud. However, it's been established since at least the Court of Appeal decision in Thane Investments and Tomlinson that it's not enough to establish a sufficient risk of dissipation, merely to show a good arguable case that the defendant has been guilty of dishonesty. But previous unrelated allegations of past dishonesty will not suffice. Now, uh, Thane was a calamitous case. Um, the application was made without notice on judgment being handed down. There was no explanation for why notice was not given. There was no application notice. There was no proper evidence, only a witness statement from a solicitor asserting that the matters in the judgment justify a suspicion by his clients that the respondents would not honour it. There were scarcely any oral submissions. There was no note of the ex-party hearing supplied to the respondents. The Lord Justice Peter Gibson in that case said, I regret that I do not see that the judgment does support a conclusion that in the particular circumstances of Mr Tomlinson, there was a real risk of assets being dissipated. Mr Black et al. submitted that it has now become the practice for parties to bring ex-party applications seeking a freezing order by pointing to some dishonesty. And that, he says, is sufficient to enable this court to make a freezing order. I have to say that if that's become the practice, then the practice should be reconsidered. It is appropriate in each case for the court to scrutinise with care whether what is alleged to have been the dishonesty of the person against whom the order is sought in itself really justifies the inference that that person has assets which he is likely to dissipate unless restricted. Now, that passage was considered uh, by Miss Justice Patton in Jarvisfield Press in Chelton, where he said the relevance of that passage in Thane, uh, of course, is to the submission uh, by Mr Lord on behalf of the claimants on this application that I should infer from the apparent dishonesty of Mrs Chelton together with the recent change of circumstances, a real likelihood and risk of dissipation. I have no difficulty in accepting the general principle emphasised by Lord Justice Peter Gibson, that a mere unfocused finding of dishonesty is not in itself sufficient to ground an application for a freezing order. It's necessary to have regard to the particular respondents to the application and to ask oneself whether, in light of the dishonest conduct which is asserted against them, there's a real risk of dissipation. As Lord Justice Peter Gibson made clear in that passage, um, the court has to scrutinise with care whether what is alleged to have been dishonesty justifies the inference. That is not therefore a judgment to the effect that a finding of dishonesty, or in this case an allegation of dishonesty, is insufficient to found the necessary inference. It is merely a welcome reminder that in order to draw that inference, it's necessary to have regard to the particular allegations of dishonesty and to consider them with some care. Uh, as the Court of Appeal put it in Morimoto, it's necessary to scrutinise the evidence to see whether the dishonesty in question points to the conclusion that assets may be dissipated. What that often entails in practice 
is, does the allegation of wrongdoing in the present claim amount to evidence of dissipation in itself? If there's a good arguable case that the defendant has misappropriated and transferred away the claimant's monies, that's strongly indicative of solid evidence of dissipation in itself and is often the principal evidence in such cases of fraud. The very wrongdoing alleged is evidence of dissipation. Take as a telling but somewhat unusual example the facts of Lacatamia and Morimoto itself. In that case, Lacatamia obtained judgment following trial against a Mr. Sue. He did not pay up. When visiting the UK, he was served with a post-judgment freezing order at Heathrow Airport. Mr. Sue was arrested trying to flee the jurisdiction by ferry from Liverpool. Not a good start. He was questioned as to his assets. He asserted that his 86-year-old mother performed a treasury function in respect of his assets, including making transfers of such assets. Lacatamia therefore issued proceedings against her for unlawful means conspiracy, the principal unlawful means being her part in the breach of the freezing order made against her son. A freezing order was granted against her ex parte. Sir Michael Burton found that there was a good arguable case against the mother, but discharged the freezer on the basis that there was no solid evidence of a risk of dissipation. That decision was not too surprisingly overturned by the Court of Appeal. It held that there was clear scope for an inference of dissipation, where the wrongdoing not merely comprised dishonest conduct, but went to the very heart of the question of the risk of dissipation. Lacatamia's causes of action against the mother bore directly on the question of dissipation itself, and concerned her assisting in the act of dissipation, albeit of her son's funds. Since Sir Michael had found that there was a good arguable case that she had previously helped her son to hide or dissipate assets, common sense suggested that there was a strong inference of a risk that she would do the same in relation to her own assets in order to frustrate the enforcement of any judgment against her. Another factor frequently relied upon is that the defendant holds his assets in a web of offshore companies trusts and the like, which are opaque and could be easily manipulated to allow assets to be hidden or dissipated. Now that's fair enough, but it's important not to equate an opportunity to dissipate by such means with a real risk that assets will be dissipated. Again, as the Court of Appeal explained in Morimoto, the respondent's use of offshore structures is relevant, but does not itself equate to a risk of dissipation. Businesses and individuals often use offshore structures as part of the normal legitimate ways in which they deal with their assets. Such legitimate reasons may properly include tra tax planning, privacy and the use of limited liability structures. So it's a factor certainly, but absent something taking it out of the norm, it's only evidence that goes into the mix. A third common factor is a defendant who does not pay his debts, even if he promises to do so, or he's someone who has in the past bounced checks. Again, a factor to place in the mix, but not necessarily determinative of itself. Take the facts of the recent case of Les Ambassadeurs Club against you. That was a somewhat unsatisfactory case. In my view, quite probably wrongly decided by a deputy judge, but not overturned by the Court of Appeal. In that case, the defendant, a Chinese businessman, had gambled at the claimant's casino. He'd been granted a cheque cashing facility and had purchased £19 million worth of chips. All the cheques issued were subsequently dishonoured. The parties entered into a settlement agreement in November 2018 under which the defendant agreed to pay the claimant £16.54 million. However, he failed to pay the first instalment when due and, under the terms of the agreement, the full amount became due and payable immediately. 
Claimant commenced proceedings in December 2018. The defendant made several payments by December 2019, reducing the principal amount outstanding to just under 6.54 million. In August 2020, the claimant recommenced proceedings with an amended claim. In November 2020, summary judgment was granted for the principal sum plus interest and costs. The judgment debt was for just over £10 million. In April 2021, the claimant unsuccessfully applied for a post-judgment freezing injunction. The deputy judge concluded that there was no more than a suspicion or fear that he would dissipate his assets, not a real risk. The Court of Appeal agreed, or more accurately, found that he had applied the, right, the correct test and they would not interfere with his conclusion. It did not necessarily follow from the fact that someone was able but unwilling to pay voluntarily that he would take steps to frustrate the enforcement of a judgment in favour of the creditor. Nevertheless, an unwillingness to pay an undisputed debt when having the means to pay was a relevant factor, and the deputy judge had treated it as such. It goes into the mix, but it's not sufficient in itself. The claimant also argued in that case that it was the degree of determination not to pay that made the case one in which it was possible to infer a real risk of unjustified dissipation. However, the Court of Appeal noted that the defendant had money in bank accounts in England and Hong Kong, and there was no evidence he'd tried to move it in response to the summary judgment. That was a legitimate matter for the judge to take into account. The deputy judge was also prepared to draw the inference that the defendant had known and was reckless as to whether his checks would be dishonoured, and rightly regarded that as a factor in favour of a risk of dissipation. However, the Court of Appeal held that the judge was not obliged to treat that as the key factor which made the case different from any other, in which a debtor simply did not wish to pay until he had to. The failure to do so did not give rise to a decision that no reasonable judge could have reached on the evidence. Reading his judgment as a whole, the Court of Appeal concluded that the judge was saying that the factors in favour of the risk of dissipation were insufficient to satisfy him that there was a real risk of dissipation. That view was one that he was entitled to reach. In my view, the claimant in that case was a tad unlucky. There are obviously other potential factors. Each case turns on its own facts. For example, a real risk of dissipation might be inferred from an intention expressed by the defendant about his future dealings with his assets. That might even be something said in without prejudice meetings, on the basis that an admission of what would amount to an intention to dissipate would equate to unambiguous impropriety and thus obviate the privilege. But exercise care in the latter case. The courts still tend to regard WP uh, negotiations jealously, as the Court of Appeal showed recently in Motorola and Hytera, where the defendant had said in WP negotiations that it would retreat to China if judgment was entered against it. But this was found not to be admissible evidence of a risk of dissipation in the circumstances. So what are the takeaways from these cases? First, exercise care when considering whether there is real and tangible evidence of dissipation. Second, look at the evidence both in the round, individually and cumulative. Third, the likelihood is that the strongest factor will be the defendant's actual allegedly fraudulent conduct in the proceedings in question, for which you will have established a good arguable case or you won't have got this far. Fourth, make sure that you full and frank it i.e. say this evidence suggests that the defendant may be able to dissipate but the defendant might say conversely that whatever. Now that's the long way around. Is there a shortcut? Um, generally yes. Make an application for a proprietary injunction in addition to your application for a conventional freezing order. 
Why? Because there's no need to prove a risk of dissipation at all. Your proprietary claim might not be for as much money as your in personam claim, and you're only entitled to disclosure in relation to what has become of the proprietary assets. But in practical terms, if you can vault the hurdle of getting an injunction, it is much easier to tack on the freezing order. As to the principles in relation to proprietary orders, there are three elements which the claimant has to demonstrate for the grant of a proprietary injunction, and those are the well-known principles in American cyanamid, that the claimant has shown there's a serious issue to be tried on the merits, that the balance of convenience is in favour of granting an injunction, and that it's just and convenient to grant the injunction. In other words, both the basis for a proprietary injunction and the circumstances in which it will be granted are different from the case of a freezing injunction. The case to cite is still Polypec International versus Azul Nadir number two, in particular Lord Donaldson, Master of the Rolls. And in particular, unlike in the case of freezing injunctions, it's not necessary to show any risk of dissipation of assets. And even if there has been delay in making an application, that might lead to refusal of a freezing injunction, a proprietary injunction may nonetheless be granted, as is on Judge Waxman QC, as he then was, observed in Cherney and Newman. Uh, and this bit is really good. All you really need to show is a serious issue to be tried. And there is authority which helps out on this front, the old case of Republic of Haiti and Duvalier. Essentially, there, the Court of Appeal um, was persuaded that there was an arguable proprietary claim and therefore relief by way of injunction and orders for disclosure will be more readily and widely granted than in the case of a freezing injunction. Dealing with the balance of convenience, there's another killer argument which a proprietary injunction hands to you. This is that, perhaps unlike your conventional freezing injunction application, although you don't need to show a risk of dissipation per se, when you apply for a proprietary injunction, you may well be irredeemably prejudiced by dissipation. Why? Well, because your claim is only to those assets which you say are arguably your own. So if those assets are dissipated, you've lost your claim. Lord Justice Hoffman, as he then was, summarised the practical approach in National Commercial Bank of Jamaica and Olin Corp. He said, in practice, however, it's often hard to tell whether either damages or the cross-undertaking will be an adequate remedy, and the court has to engage in trying to predict whether granting or withholding an injunction is more or less likely to cause irredeemable prejudice, and to what extent, if it turns out the injunction should have been granted or withheld, as the case may be. The basic principle is that the court should take whichever course seems likely to cause the least irredeemable prejudice to, any, to one party or the other. And the least irredeemable prejudice should be not to let the defendant spend what is arguably the claimant's money. Always good to end on a positive note. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.